Would you open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 7, Revelation 7, verses 9 through the end of the chapter in verses 17. In the book of Revelation, it's sometimes hard to pull out a single passage of Scripture and preach about it because there is so much going on and the type of literature that the book of Revelation is apocalyptic looking forward and it's visionary. And there's different ideas of what the interpretations might be. But this one, we're safe. This one is straightforward. And this one reminds us of that idea of a great multitude from all nations. And it is a joy to see young people from Korea not knowing where they went because it must be a limited access country. Um, that they're not allowed to say on the video that they went and shared their testimony. You heard word after word of folks that trusted Christ as their Savior. So we give to support them. We pray to support them. But we also need to be a part of being missionaries wherever we're at. Because you, as the saying goes, may be the only Bible some people ever read. So we seek to develop relationships. We seek to share the gospel And we seek to live a life like Jesus so that those around us will see him as well. Let's stand with me in honor of reading God's word, if you're able to stand. And we'll read Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their face before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, they Uh, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, we see this picture of a great multitude in eternity. And we can only imagine what it will be like when we are there too. When we participate in that throng of every nation, tribe, people, and language. And we stand and worship you. And Father, until that time, while we're here on this earth, and this time, would you convict us that we might live our life in such a way that others would join us in heaven? Because we've shared the gospel with them. We've shared our lives with them. And they've trusted Christ as their Savior. 
So, Father, speak to us now. Make us obedient. Give us courage. Fill us with faith and love. We ask in the name of Jesus. And every one of us says, Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Your scripture memory verse for the month is the first part of verse 9 there. And let's say that together. Revelation 7, 9a. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Revelation 7, 9a. The Lamb is the Lamb of God. It's Jesus. And it's before Jesus that every tongue will bow or every knee will bow, every tongue confess that He is Lord. So we've got a few questions to answer this morning. Four in particular is our main points. And the first one is, how is this multitude described? In Scripture, the multitude that is going to be standing before Jesus in heaven, how are they described? Verse 9, we just read it. They're from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And they'll stand before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They're wearing white robes and they're holding palm branches in their hands. This is how they're described. Each one of these pictures and each one of these words has meaning to it. Every tribe and tongue. Your answer there starts with countless. They are countless When we think about them being countless, that goes back to that idea of a great multitude, a great multitude. Now, I'm not talking about something that you can count, like when you go to the Husker football game and you look around and there's 90,000 people and somewhere during the game, they put the announcement on the screen and they say, today's attendance is, and you go, "Woo, we're all here in attendance. You can count those, right? And I'm not talking about something like if you're in Um, Yellowstone National Park and you drive up to Lamar Valley, which is vast, and you see uh, all the bison grazing. And even though you say, wow, that's countless. But if you stood there with the telescope, you could probably count most all of them, right? Unless they were laying down or hiding behind their mom or a rock or something. I'm talking about something like when I've been to see the Sandhill Cranes. And when you're standing there as dusk is falling and all around you is the cacophony of sound and there are thousands of cranes and they're swirling and, you know, uh, around as they fly and coming to land and then maybe getting back up. And there's no way you could count them because they're moving too fast. Countless. Absolutely awesome because they can't be counted. They are, by definition, countless. When you think about people, and we think about how many different nations, tribes, people, and languages. Nations is easier to count. You know, there's about a little less than 300 nations in the world right now. But in different times, there's been different counts of nations. Tribes, people's languages is different. When you look at, say, the JoshuaProject.com, which is an evangelical Christian website about reaching people groups with the gospel of Jesus. It says it depends on how you count. When we talk about linguistic people groups, there's about 11,000 in the world. They share a common language. When you talk about uh, ethno-linguistic people groups, there's a little bit different definition there. They share a common language, but then a common dialect as well. That's about 13,000. 
When you talk about different ethnic people groups, they share a common language, a common dialogue, a common religion, a common caste, and maybe even a common culture, that gets you to about 17,000. You see, when you add these commonalities, it spreads out further, right? And then, when you talk about the next level of people, uninational, it was called, that adds education, politics, customs, histories, and behavior, 24,000 different people groups. So that goes to that definition of countless, but also cosmopolitan, that they're from every different people group all around the world in all different cultures. Next Saturday evening or next Friday evening, won't it be, Mark, that we have our hosting the International Student Fellowship here at Southview? And I imagine Mark's talked to some of you, and if uh, you are interested in serving, Mark's right here, raise your hand, Mark. That's him. If you don't know him, talk to him about how you can serve right here in this church. You don't have to go around the world to be on international missions. You can come here next Friday night and have a gospel conversation with somebody from somewhere else in the world that's a student at UNL through the International Student Fellowship. But 24,000, the cosmopolitan number of people Look at that next phrase there. It says, and they were standing before the throne in front of the Lamb. That's your third definition there, that they're close. They're countless, cosmopolitan, and close. They're standing before the Lamb. They're not spread out over a vast valley. They're not swooping in over the Platte River as the Sandhill Cranes are, but they're all standing in one space before the Lamb. And although the universe is vast and although heaven itself is enormous, they are standing in one place before the Lamb of God, Jesus. They're close to Him. So when we're describing how are they described, that is accurate. They're close. You think about it. You look around this room this morning, we have people that maybe come from 20 miles this way and 10 miles that way and 30 miles this way and 20 miles that way, and we're from all around, yet we come together together in this place to study God's Word and to worship together, and we call ourselves a church family. We gather together for the purpose of worship. That's what was happening here. All these people, 24,000 different people groups coming together to worship Up close, Jesus. The next word you see there in describing the multitude is that they're pure. They're pure. What's it say there? And they were wearing white robes. White is a symbol of purity. Throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible, and most every culture, white is a symbol of purity. Maybe you've heard me tell the story before that when we got married, Melanie gave me a card that said, here comes the bride all dressed in white, you know, because she was going to be dressed in white. And I tell you, when she came through the back door of that church with the sunlight streaming through and the big smile on her face, I floated up off the ground. Literally, I must have. Everybody else was looking at her, so the miracle wasn't recorded, right, that I floated. (laughs) The card she gave me, here comes the bride all dressed in white. You open it up, and it says on the inside, and here comes the groom, but frankly, nobody cares about rental boy. It's all about the babe in the dress, isn't it? The gal in the white dress is who everybody's looking at. You know, you kind of nod at the guy. Hey, man, you look sharp. Yeah, you're wearing your rental tuxedo. Ha, ha, ha. But she's got the most amazing dress she's ever worn, and she spent hours getting made up. And, you know, it's all about the babe in the dress. 
that symbol of white, that symbol of purity, is right here in Scripture, that they're wearing white robes. What's the next phrase, though? And they were holding palm branches in their hands. What does that one mean? They're victorious. That the multitude described with these visionary pictures and these emblems of white robes, but then palm branches. What does a palm branch mean in the Bible? A palm branch means in the Bible you're hailing a king. And you're hailing the king victorious. When do we know about a king in the Bible that came in with palm branches waving? Jesus on what we call Palm Sunday, right? We uh, depict it right here with Seymour the donkey helping us out in a cloud of dust as you pat him on the backside from that going up the aisle, victorious, that these people, the multitude described from every tribe and every tongue, were victorious over what? Well, we'll get there in a few minutes. But let's get to your last description. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches. And verse 10, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. The final description is that they were saved. They had been saved by the Lamb that they were worshiping. They are believers in Jesus. And as followers of Jesus who had been through all sorts of trial and tribulation, now they were victorious, receiving their reward in heaven. Saved. 2 Timothy 1.9 says he saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we had done, but because of his own purpose and grace. He saved us, not we ourselves, but he saved us because of his purpose and grace. And so these descriptions that we see in verse 9 and 10 describe to us the multitude that's there in heaven my question for you is, which quality most intrigues me? Of these different descriptions, which one most intrigues you? If you were going to be a part of that multitude, that throng in heaven, which one are you most looking forward to? Well, you know, I'm kind of not too cosmopolitan here in Lincoln, Nebraska. There's more folks that look like me than folks there, so it might be cool that you'd be among every tribe and every tongue. I don't know about you, that's the one I'm most looking forward to, and I'm glad that heaven lasts a long time because I want to meet some believers from other places and say, tell me your story. Tell me how you came to trust Christ as your Savior. Tell me what you went through as a believer in Jesus. Tell me how you grew as a believer in Jesus. And oh, by the way, while we're doing this, can you have me over for dinner? Because I really like to eat foods from different places too. So I'll just invite myself over, right? I'll have them over to my house, too, and cook American food for them. And, but I, I, I want to have a long time to have conversations with people. But maybe it's the victory part that you're most interested in because what you're going through in your life right now and how you're fighting and struggling and you want to hear the stories of others. Maybe it's the saved part because you haven't yet trusted Christ Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. And you want to hear testimony and story of others to say, how did you get saved? What convinced you? What changed your mind? All of us have different reasons and things we look forward to. But let's go on in our passage of Scripture. The first point, of course, is how is the multitude described? Verses 11 and 12 is what is the response to the multitude? What is the response to the multitude? And that's in verse 11 and 12, as I said. Look at what it says. It says, all the angels were standing around. 
Um, all means all, and that's a whole lot. I don't know how many angels there are in heaven, but all of them were standing around too. So this is a not only a multitude of people, but a multitude of countless angels. And look at what next it says. They're standing around the throne, and the elders, referred to previously in the book of Revelation, these elders of the church who have a special recognition in heaven. And then the four living creatures, these described previously in Revelation as well, these supernatural creatures that symbolically but had great power power given to them by God. So the angels, the elders, and the living creatures, what does it say they do? Not only are they there, but verse 11 goes on, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. These amazing, holy, supernatural, inspired beings also, and in response to the worship of the multitude, they fall on their face and worship him. And then they say something in verse 12. We'll get there in a minute. But they fall down and worship him. Notice in verse 12, it says amen. And then there's all these other words and it says amen again. You know what amen means, right? Amen is what we say when we finish a prayer, right? Amen? Amen's what we say when we, the pastor asks it with a question in his mark, a question mark in his voice. Amen? No, amen literally means so let it be. And so you're saying, so let it be. And so as a bookend to this worship, this praise that they offer, these supernatural heavenly beings are saying amen and amen. They're saying, so let it be and so let it be. What are they talking about? Well, the first thing there in verse 12, it says praise. Your Bible might say blessing. And then it says glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. They're recognizing God for who he is. His wisdom beyond all wisdom that God knows everything and sees it all. And thanks, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks. We're giving him thanks for who he is. And honor. We're honoring God for what he's done and power. God has power unlike any other on this earth. And because of his power, we can worship him and strength. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is how the heavenly beings react to the worship of the multitude of Jesus as they gather together. Crying out in worship for the salvation that he's given them. Your application question there asks, how should I react to salvation? When you think about salvation, your question is, how should I react to salvation? That's on the screen there now. Will you give praise to God for what he's done? Will you give him glory? Do you recognize his wisdom? Do you give him thanks? Do you honor him? Do you recognize his power? Different people react in different ways. And sometimes when we react, even in a worshipful way, it's different. Sometimes in worship, we raise our hands. Sometimes in worship, we sing. Sometimes we shout, holler. Sometimes we're broken and humbled and quiet. I'll never forget when I was in Africa, when... We would show the Jesus movie, the 1972, I think it was, Jesus movie made by Campus Crusade for Christ. 
And we would go to places where they didn't have electricity out in the village or in a squatter camp. And we'd set up the big screen and we had a long extension cord with a generator further away so the noise wouldn't be too loud that people couldn't hear the movie. And we'd have a sound system set up. And people would come just because we're putting on a show, right? Shows don't happen when you live in a squatter camp in a village. There's no electricity there. And then you start talking and singing, people come and you can have a crowd of hundreds or thousands standing around for hours to watch the Jesus movie. I was always impressed by the crowd, but the thing that never ceased to amaze me was how that the African people reacted to certain scenes. Scenes that were harsh and scenes that were violent in which Jesus was being crucified, the African people would laugh at. And at first I was angry. I thought, why are they laughing at Jesus getting crucified? And I think one of the older missionaries saw my face and he saw my reaction. He says, Aaron, it's just something about their culture that they laugh at pain. It's like because they've lived in pain, it's not that they're making fun of it, but it's almost a reaction to the fear because they've experienced it themselves. I don't think any of us are going to laugh when we get to heaven. Maybe you will. And you're certainly not going to laugh at the pain of Jesus when you get to heaven. But worship, there's sometimes when we stand and see things that are so amazing, isn't it? So we need to move on to our next point. We talked about the response to the multitude. The third point is what is the identity of the multitude? Verse 13, and one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? Now, this is interesting because remember In Revelation, it's a vision that John is having, and he's writing down this divine vision of what is to come under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But now John gets involved in the story because one of the elders comes and asks him what he thinks about it. John's answer, verse 14, Sir, you know, um, that may be because either John didn't absolutely know who they were, he wasn't absolutely sure, or he was like, I'm not going to say anything. You know, this is an elder Uh, Standing before the throne of God, he's got it right, so I'm just going to try not to answer the question. One way or the other, the elder was merciful, and he said, and he said to them, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation, washed their robes, and have made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The first part of verse 15 says, They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. So there's this conversation that takes place, and then there's the description of the multitude. The first description of the multitude is that they're survivors. That's on your outline there. They're survivors. They made it through the tribulation. Now, doubtless you've heard something about the rest of the book of Revelation, or I would encourage you to go home and read it. There's been movies made about it, books you can read about it, lots of different theories on when and how things are going to take place in the last days, the end times. But this says that these that are worshiping here have made it through the great tribulation. It identifies them as survivors. And it says of them that they have been purified. And it says they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They weren't just white robes that were given to them. They were white robes that were washed in the blood. I remember sometime as a kid growing up in a church in Texas, hearing the song, Are You Washed in the Blood? And finally going, wait a second. How do you get washed in the blood? Blood is red. And if you got washed in that, you would be icky and red. You wouldn't be clean. 
But there's a different understanding of what blood is, right? It's the blood of the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. It's not physical blood and that purification that takes place. Listen to what Ephesians 1, 7 says. It says, in him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. That picture, Ephesians 1.17, of who Jesus is and what he's in and through his blood. 1 John 1.7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sins. It's the blood of Jesus that makes the robes white, that washes away all of our sins as he shed his blood as a sacrifice for the sins of all people of all times. The blood of Jesus And what's the final point there? They're worshipers. They're survivors. They're purified by Jesus' blood, so they are believers in Jesus, have been washed by his blood. And what are they doing? They're worshiping. Verse 15 said, they serve him day and night who sits on the throne. They're worshiping him. Therefore, it means for this reason. Have you ever seen something magnificent and you just didn't want to move? This past summer, when our family got to go on a trip to Maui in Hawaii, we were staying uh, in this house, rental house, called the Rainforest Retreat because it was in a rainforest and there's trees and all kinds of birds and stuff. And yeah, it was kind of cool. Um, and that was at 78-foot elevation. How do I know it was 78-foot? Because I have an app on my phone that tells me it was close to the ocean, right? Well, looming behind us was... Haleakala. Haleakala is a volcano that they still say is active, even though it hasn't blown up in, you know, thousands of years or whatever. Of course, the kids are like, is it going to blow up while we're there? I'm like, no, no, I don't think so anyhow. I mean, they haven't told us anything's happening. But Haleakala is 10,320 feet. You look up and there it is. And it looms over the entire island. So we weren't able to get the reservations to get there for sunrise because that's tough to do. But sunset, we said we're going to the top of Haleakala for sunset. So from where we're at there, whereas the crow flies, it's like 20 miles. But not when you're going up a mountain, right? Because there's switchbacks. So we're switchbacking up the road for a long time. And at the very top, there's all these observatories. And there's a parking lot that holds about 40 cars. And about a half mile down the road, there's a bigger parking lot that holds about 80 cars. We got there late enough, the, ups, the, the top parking lot was already closed. So we go to the parking lot there. We got our spot. John, Mark, and I got out. And, you know, down by the beach there, it was 80 degrees. It was warm. Up on top of the 10,000-foot mountain, with the sun setting, it was already 50 degrees, getting colder by the moment, and the wind was blowing 40 miles an hour. But when we got to the top, and when we saw the sunset, though we were freezing, we didn't want to leave. Seth will show you that picture now. This is John Mark standing on top of Haleakala at 10,000 feet. See somebody in a chair behind him. And there's West Maui there and Lanai over there. And those clouds below are at about 6,000 feet. And John, Mark, and I just stood there quiet. As oohs and ahs and camera shutters were going off all around us with 100 people all around. And I thought a little bit of, is this what heaven's going to be like? That when I finally see Jesus face to face, I'll just be dumbfounded. I won't be able to say anything because I'll be like, it's really him. I'm really here. 
And though we were frozen, John Mark in his shorts and hoodie in that picture, he stood there stock still and he looked at that. I think it took us an hour to thaw out, didn't it, John Mark, by the time we got back to the car. But it was worth it. So worth it. Standing in worship because of what we saw was so majestic and that can't compare to what we're going to see in heaven. Let's move on to your next point. Your next point is... What's the destiny of the multitude? We're going to skip on past that one. Thank you. What's the destiny of the multitude? That's in these final verses, verse 15, 16, and 17. Let's start to the top of verse 15 again. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. And never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not bear upon them, nor any scorching heat. The destiny of the multitude is they're going to be in heaven forever. And your explanation of that is the first thing is that they're sheltered. Sheltered. This picture is that he'll spread his tent over them. Is literally that idea of tabernacling. That God, when he had his people in His people worshipped him and they went through the desert from Egypt to the promised land. Had tabernacled among them. That God's presence was among them. The Shekinah glory of God was there. And it would be that Shekinah glory of God that would shelter people who are now in heaven. And that next picture in verse 16 is that they'll be cared for. That's on your screen already that they'll be cared for. Look at what it said there. They'll never hunger, they'll never thirst. The sun's not going to be on them. They had been through tribulation and all sorts of terrible things had happened to them, but not any longer. You know, the Bible is full of all different sorts of images. And think about what it says of Jesus. In John 6, 51, it says that he's the bread of life. It says here, they'll never be thirsty anymore or hungry anymore. In John four thirteen, he says, he's the water of life. It says they'll never be thirsty again. And in Revelation 2.17, it says he's hidden manna, that Jesus himself will provide care for them. That next point there is that they'll be shepherded. Shepherded. What did it say in verse 17? For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear. He is going to care for them. Everybody knows Psalm 23, right? That idea, that picture of God as our shepherd. And Jesus says of himself, I am the good shepherd. That he will lead his sheep, his people, us, where we need to go. And it says that he'll wipe away every tear. They'll be fulfilled and they'll be joyous. Joyous is the last blank there on that. Joy is different than happiness. You can be joyful sometimes even when you're sad. This past week we saw on Facebook that Pastor Bill Mize, who used to serve our church and has served many other churches, Indian Hills, noteworthy among them in Lincoln, is near death. And I immediately said, I've got to go. And got to meet his wife, Carolyn, and his daughter, Kim, and visit with them and pray with them for a while. And it was one of those moments seeing my dear friend, Pastor Bill, a saint, a mentor to me, a man of God, laying there 
near the time in which he's going to pass from this earth to the next to meet Jesus, that though I was sad, I was joyous. Because I know how Pastor Bill knew the book of Revelation. And I know how he taught the book of Revelation. And I know how he knew all the Bible and taught the Bible. And his passion for Jesus and the way he looked forward to glory. And he was almost there. So though I was sad for the family and sad for those of us that he won't be here on earth to teach us anymore. He's going to be in glory. And there's joy. The destiny of that multitude pictured here and all of us who are believers in Jesus is that same place, heaven. My question for application and frankly a conclusion to apply it to you is who do I know who needs such love? Look on that slide there or look on your notes, just those points right above. Who do you know that needs sheltered? Maybe you do know somebody that needs physical shelter, a better home or a home. Who do you know that needs sheltered spiritually or emotionally, though? That needs a relationship where they're cared for. Who do you know in that care, what type of care do they need? They need somebody to listen to them, somebody to be there and help them out. Somebody they can count on. Who do you know that needs shepherded? And I'm not trying to get you any sense of pride that you're better than anybody else. But if you know something, God has given you that gift so you might give it to somebody else. Your job as a growing Christ follower is to grow Christ followers. So what you know, God intends you to pass on. So you're, as you have been shepherd, you're shepherding someone else. Who do you know that needs shepherded? If you're an adult, there are probably children in your life. If you're a little bit older, there are younger adults in your life. If you're in some sort of leadership or management role at work, there are folks you can shepherd. And not just how, what, what job to do, but how to do the job and the heart and the way they do the job. Who do you know that needs fulfilled? They're looking for all sorts of different solutions this world has to offer, but they're not finding them because they're not looking for Jesus that meets every need. And who do you know that in spite of their circumstances needs Real joy. So although this is intended to be a sermon that gets our minds to heaven and thinking about every tribe, nation, people, and language, it's also intended for us to think about our own lives and who we know that needs to be in heaven with us. It's a vision that we can all participate in. It's a vision we should all participate in. We can pray. We can give. We can go. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven. We thank you for the promises of your word. That in this vision of the great multitude of every nation, tribe, and language. We know that you have a promise for all who are believers of Jesus. Promise for us. And though you call us to be a part of sharing the gospel with everyone all around the world. There are places we'll never go. 
languages we don't speak. People will never meet. But we can pray for our missionaries. We can give to support our missionaries. We can pray for national believers all over, wherever they may be. And we can be a part of sharing the gospel in our own world with the people in our family, in our workplace, in our neighborhood, in our circle of friends. That more would be gathered together with that multitude to worship Jesus for who he is and what he's done. God, our Father, we thank you for the promises of Scripture you give us. And we ask now that we would be obedient to participate as you call us to, to give as you call us to give, to pray daily, even with this week of prayer. But most of all, to share our life and to share the gospel with those that we know. May we be obedient to you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.